Hey friends, just a quick little disclaimer at the top of this particular episode. Drangely and I are currently on tour. Yes, we are independent musicians. We're doing the thing. But this means we are traveling around with a single microphone and not a lot of control over the sound quality of the rooms that we record in. So this one does not have great sound. Great apologies to anyone who's going to listen to this with earbuds. But we thought it was still a fun episode and we really wanted to get an episode on time anyway. So I hope you still enjoy it. Uh, Here's Ripper Street. Hi, I'm Sarah Shea. And I'm Strangely Duesberg. Welcome to the Pilot House. A podcast where we watch all the shows we missed the first time around. And try to figure out where the heck they were going with this. So Ripper Street. All right, what do we know? I know exactly two things about this show. It takes place in the sweet outfit old-timey days. <laughs> and Jerome Flynn is in it who is on Game of Thrones, and he is one of my favorite actors currently working, and I had no idea he's on a whole other show that has multiple seasons. I'm so excited. Yeah, all I know about this is that it takes place in Jack the Ripper times, I think. I'm pretty sure that's why it's called Ripper Street. And the impression I have of it, although I can't say I know any of these things for sure, is that it is uh, kind of an old-timey procedural. It's styled after a modern procedural but set in old times they're probably going to use all sorts of uh, anachronistic techniques that people didn't actually have in those times to solve old-timey crimes Mm -hmm. uh that's just the impression i've gotten and i keep accidentally uh conflating it with peaky blinders i think that's one that has killian murphy on it yes killian murphy is on peaky blinders also said in the sweet outfit old-timey days yeah i kept getting like artificially excited about watching ripper street because i was thinking killian murphy's gonna be on it and i kept having to go no that's that's the one with the more inscrutable title i've 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 been to a live play starring killian murphy i know (sighs) i know i've heard that story pause for killian murphy Every time somebody calls him Cillian on a podcast, which happens distressingly often, I'm like, wow. Every time. Anyway. Anyway. So police procedural set in the sweet outfit old timey days. Jerome Flynn is in it. Yeah, it's British. Mm. We're going to. I mean, it's going to be interesting. Let's let's put the the flannel to the the cobble. Yeah, let's do that. All right. Here we go. All right, so we just watched the pilot of Ripper Street. I Need Light. Oh my goodness. Good title. Such a good title. And uh, before we get into our reactions and then the sort of recap, we're playing with the format a little bit this week, so let us know what you think, and uh, hopefully this will streamline the episode creation process a little bit. So, oh my goodness. Yeah, initial reactions. The clothing. I want all the clothing in the show. (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't get to meet a lot of women in this episode who are not prostitutes. So uh, the women's costuming is uh, pretty flamboyant. We don't get to see a lot of day-to-day women's wear in this particular episode. But the the suits on the gentlemen are quite nice. Oh my god. So many like amazing plaids and stripes (laughs) and... I don't know how period accurate that, that all oh, is. Yeah, oh, yeah, no. my God. It's always the disclaimer when I watch a period show. It's like, I don't know how accurate any of it is, but it looked great. <laughs> I, know, I think that this might be, so far, our most accurate what we know Yeah. ever. Like, it, everything we said in the what we know, I think, was true. 
<laughs> so there you go. Not that we knew much, but right. we weren't misinformed about anything, except the, the part where I kept mixing it up with Peaky Blinders, but I knew I was mixing it up. Yeah. It's, it's a procedural set post-Jack the Ripper crimes um, where a bunch of old detectives solve old-timey crimes in old-timey times. Yeah. Old-timey crimes in old I like that. Uh, one of the things that I loved about this show is that it's all shot practically. There's not mm, yeah. like so many modern shows that want to show Victorian London or whatever have like there'll be like all this green screen work or there'll be all these yeah. like it'll be a big shot CGI of the city. cityscape or whatever. Yeah. And this was like it kept it small. It, you know, there's some nice big wide shots with a bunch of carriages and whatever. But the cool thing for me watching this is that it felt much more real and immediate, even though it's supposed to take place like 130 years ago. Because everything felt so tactile. Mm -hmm. And there was yeah. a lot of texture to things. Like things were dirty or places were clean or whatever. Like there was a lot of different texture. Yeah. And one of the nice things about it, I thought, one of the things I mentioned that what we know is that I suspected it was going to be one of those things where they use suspiciously modern uh, detecting techniques. Mm -hmm. And they did a little bit of that, but in a fun way. They didn't go overboard. It didn't right. get steampunk about it. Right. They didn't have any devices they shouldn't have had or something. Yeah. There were just moments where you went, and, and maybe there were people at the time who were starting to delve into that, but there were moments where someone did something and you went, did they actually know about that technique back then? Or are we just trying to make the show cooler for modern audiences? I don't know. It, it, it all worked, in my opinion. I enjoyed the pilot. It, it all felt in, consistent with its own internal logic. Yeah. So. And and and, it, and you didn't have to keep reminding yourself of that, though. Because there are shows right. where you have to go, all right, it, they've set up their own little universe and they're following their own little rules. Right. It, it, you didn't think about it. It worked. Right. It just um, was. Yeah. And, I mean, you were mentioning to me that telling people about us watching this show, you mm. heard from a lot of people that they didn't like the show. Yeah. So I, I don't know. So I, but... but Interestingly, we both like the pilot. It's a pretty yeah. good pilot. It, it's not... Honestly, I don't think there was any moment that I like laughed at mm -hmm. like, or thought was like, oh my God, that's so silly. Or, oh my gosh, that's such a TV thing. Yeah. There was no like particularly painful exposition drops. <laughs> there was only one bit of hilarious extra acting, and it was pretty background stuff. Yeah. I didn't notice it the first time we watched it. I only noticed it on the second viewing, but... I, yeah, I think it's a pretty good show. So it's it's a little disheartening to hear that some people didn't like it because it makes me think it's one of those shows with a good pilot that then kind of fails. Right, they didn't know what they were going to do. In the follow up, yeah. All right, synopsis. This is not going to be as short a synopsis as I wanted it to be, but we're still figuring out this new setting. So um, the show is set in London in the wake of the Jack the Ripper murders. If you don't know the history, neither do I, but I know the basics. He was never caught. After a certain number of killings, he just disappeared. And it just, people just waited for him to come back until they just kind of went, oh, this is gone. Um, so this show is set during relatively uh, recently, within a I would, year. Uh, or so. Definitely, it seems like within a year. Um, our hero, Inspector Reed, played by Matthew McFadden, mm. who in his first shot in the show, I thought was um, Gareth David Lloyd, who plays Yonta Jones on. Um, <laughs> I said driftwood. <laughs> Torchwood. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I got really excited and then realized, oh no, I'm recognizing him from that garbage movie that I hated that he was in. 
the 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 death death at a funeral. Yeah. I I'm sorry to say garbage movie. A lot of people liked it. It was not for me. Anyway, um, he's Inspector Reed. Uh, he was one of the two detectives who was assigned to the Jack the Ripper case. In this pilot, uh, a woman is found murdered who appears to have been ripped, and Reed is desperate to prove it wasn't Jack because the city is just just beginning to recover from Jack the Ripper's reign of terror. And people were hiding in their homes, afraid to walk the streets. They're just starting to come out of that. And Reed is desperate to prove that it's not Jack's return, unless it really is. You know, he wants to be absolutely sure. He just doesn't want the city to return to that state unless he's really back. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's fighting against an overzealous and smarmy journalist, Mr. Best, who's... Uh, trying to report that it's Jack, and also to convince the chief inspector, Abilene, Abilene? Abilene? Adeline. Fred Adeline. Adeline. Mm-hmm. Who was, I think, his former partner, and now he's the chief inspector, or something like that, who previously worked with him on the Jack the Ripper case. This, the chief inspector, he is desperate for it to be Jack because he wants another chance to catch him. Yes. He wants another crack at Jack. I didn't oh. even plan that. Best wants to, it to be Jack because uh, he wants to sell more newspapers. So for mm-hmm. him, it's greed. With Adeline, it's he wants to get another chance at Jack. Yeah. So they both have their reasons for wanting to, it to be Jack. Reed wants it not to be. Right. So that's our basic premise yeah. there for it, for probably the overarching show. That is the setup. Yeah. So in this particular episode, Reed and his second hand, Drake, who's the guy you recognized from yep. Game of Thrones. Jerome Flynn. He's kind of delightful. I really enjoyed his character. Yeah. They are pulled away from a sting operation where they're trying to crack an underground fighting ring. They're pulled away from it to investigate this murder. They team up with an American doctor named Jackson. Didn't mm-hmm. get his first name, I don't think. Homer Jackson. Homer? Good good name. Ooh. Very old-timey. Um, he's a former army surgeon and Pinkerton detective who is of a questionable social-slash-moral standing. <laughs> uh, Drake and Adeline both think he's garbage. Reed trusts him because he knows his shit. Because he is a very, very good surgeon and a very good detective. Yes. It's a good combination. It's not vi- visible in the episode, but it, it seems sort of like the he may have some sort of debilitating vice that occasionally rears its ugly head. Mm. That there, There's something that makes him ineffect Like, other than being of questionable moral character, it seems like sometimes he's not up to... Right. A challenge. And, you know, he is... When Reed first comes to get him, he does find him betwixt the thighs of a young lady in a house of ill repute. <laughs> and he does have some sort of shady past with the owner of the brothel, the madam, mm-hmm. Suzanne, mm-hmm. which is hinted in the pilot we don't get into. Right. They have some sort of history and something they're trying to hide from Reed that we don't right. find out about. But that's one of a few things they set up for the future show yes. that isn't wrapped up in the pilot, which is nice. So when they first came to this murder scene of the, the, the crime of the episode, mm-hmm. the woman appears to have been ripped, right? Mm-hmm. She looks like one of Jack the Ripper's victims. And there is some graffiti on the wall of the crime scene, either in paint or blood. It's not established. This is Down With Whores, which is something from one of Jack the Ripper's. I think he wrote letters to the police or something. Yeah. And that's definitely one of his phrases. There's also a photographer already at the crime scene taking pictures um, which will come into play later. Reed demands he take a bunch of pictures. He says, you're on my payroll now, even though Best, the smarmy journalist, was the one who actually invited the photographer there. Mm-hmm. His name is Croydon. 
becomes an important character. When they get the woman back to the police station and have Jackson examine her, he finds actually quite a lot of evidence that it was not Jack the Ripper's work. They later say she was uh, asphyxiated, she was strangled. Mm -hmm. Uh, The... The cutting of the throat and the disfiguration of her face, all of that was actually post-mortem. So an afterthought to make it look like Jack Thurper's work. He also finds evidence that she was in a photo studio. It takes him a while to figure out that's what the evidence is, but we're we're working through it here. So they also figure out that some of the evidence, the graffiti, was actually manufactured by Best, Mm -hmm. the smarmy journalist. They follow some Sherlock-esque findings of Jackson's. He, he, he surmises she was a fiddle teacher, and Drake's like, oh, what, you can talk to spirits now? Nice <laughs> reference to the spiritualism fad. And he goes... Oh, so that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut in here, because yeah. I actually wrote down that line. Uh, Jackson says, has the Pinkerton been conferring with spirits? Which... Drake, Drake said it, not Jackson. Oh, sorry, Drake. Yeah, Jerome Flynn. Yeah. Drake. He says that, uh, and it's like, I think it's a pun... Because he's like, has is he like a psychic? Or is he like, is he drunk? Oh, I didn't catch that. But <laughs> that seems maybe a little too clever for Drake. I like Drake's character, yeah. but he seems like very salt of the earth. He does Not, not a wordplay guy, maybe. But I that's how I read it. That was one of the like little details that oh. made me think maybe this guy has like a substance abuse thing. Interesting. That, yeah. that could be. I didn't read it that way. Um, but yeah, he says, yeah. well... She has this particular indentation on her chin and clavicle that's mm-hmm. consistent with playing the fiddle, as well as calluses on her fingers. So he says she was a fiddle player. He also, it was something about some soot in her hair that gave him evidence that she lives in a particular neighborhood. Right, because she's Sherlock. been riding the underground. Right, very Sherlock-esque. But mm-hmm. they follow up on this and find out, yeah, this is true. She was a fiddle teacher in a nice suburb of London. Or rather, they find out a fiddle teacher from that suburb of London is missing, and when they go to her home, they find her husband was set up to look like he was committing suicide. They managed to rescue him from the noose, being strangled. Mm-hmm. Drake sees a man in a carriage, a well-dressed uh, man that they refer to as a toff, which is kind of a delightful word. It's a little annoying that, you know, we have a queer-coded villain, but... It did make sense in the episode because they needed a physical distinction right. to reference him by because they see him several times later. Yes. So we can kind of forgive the queer coding. But they can't follow him in the carriage and saves the man life, so he, he gets away. Um, the man is the husband of the dead woman. We find out he saved her from a life on the streets in London, but recently they'd had some financial troubles and he feared that she might have returned to that sort of work in order to help them not lose their home. Yeah. Because he had mortgaged both their home and her fiddle to try and yeah, save them. Yeah, to try and save save their, their financial station. Yeah, as yeah. It were. He's he's very very upset. He you know he wanted to save this woman, right. and she turned around and had to kind of save him by returning to the thing he tried to save her from. Right. Uh, Jackson, meanwhile, is doing a little investigating on his own. He's looking into the gelatin he found on the dead woman's thigh, which they think is. Uh, silver solution, I think I said. Right, which is something used in photography of this era. Yeah, exactly. He returns to the brothel, and we get a little bit of the backstory, the tense relationship between him and Suzanne, Mm -hmm. the madam. And he asks her, it's a nice turn of phrase, which of the girls has a leaning to smut? He's talking about dirty photos. We see some pictures of, you know, women with their titties out uh, in old-timey clothes. (laughs) <laughs> Women with their titties out in old-timey clothes. 
The funny thing is, the photos he shows her to establish we're talking about old-timey smut are obviously real old-timey pictures. And then later when we see the pictures of Rose, the character he's involved yeah. with, they're way too sharp. Yeah. The pictures are too clear. It's another, it's like the President Merkin thing. It's like, don't yeah. show us the real thing and yeah. then show us the fake thing unless yeah. you've really made the fake thing consistent. Yeah. Anyway, um, like just put put a softness filter on that yeah. shit. Like it was just too too crisp. Also, I think President Merkin is now our official term for poor pr- production design elements. Yeah. For when when something's inconsistent like that. Yep. Yeah. It's a President Merkin. <laughs> anyway, um it turns out, yeah, Rose is the one mm-hmm. in the house who's been doing the 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 dirty photos. She then takes Jackson to this photo studio where she's been working. We see a bunch of guys with cameras. It's a huge operation. There's yeah. several cameras. So those things were not cheap back in the day. No. And a bunch of women dressed in like character costumes, historical characters, little Bo Peep and all this stuff. But, you know, with they titties out. Which it's fun that they, <laughs> they really leaned into the historical figures detail because in smut of that era, if you were like, well, it's Cleopatra and Cleopatra... Did did have her titties out because she was an Egyptian of uh, you know of right. a heathen. Yeah, it was it was like oh what's the word I'm looking for thinly veiled thinly like, veiled excuse. Yeah, to be like but it's art though. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I I did enjoy that they they portrayed that in the episode. That was really fun. While they're at the studio, Jackson finds some evidence mm-hmm. of photos taken. Of the act rather than just nudes, which was right. kind of the thing at the time. Photos yeah. taken of the actual act, that was new. Yeah. I don't know if it actually had happened at this time in, in history, it, but in the pilot, they're saying this is not the so norm. At the time, at that time in history, like there were people taking photos of that, but it was so rare and so like, I mean, you could go to prison for a long time for that. Yeah. That um, like photos from that era of the act are incredibly valuable now because they're so rare but it, it was like it the level of like oh my god that the characters in the episode are experiencing yeah um is absolutely real yeah i think well also it's uh i mean i've seen examples online of victorian smut yeah. and they do seem to mostly be photos of women with their titties with their titties out but even the ones of the act are like highly staged yeah it's just someone standing there and they're just looking at the camera like here we are with a dick inside a vagina (laughs) that's happening whereas the sample they find looks very it's more of like what we would consider to be pornography now yeah it's like a close-up shot it's a, the face is obscured. Yeah. You almost feel motion in the in the yeah. photo, which you really didn't get at the time because you had to stand so fucking still to get a photo. Right. That's why they seem very. We are posing, but with a dick. <laughs> Strange needs to write that down. Apparently, I'm writing down the timestamp for that one because that might just go into our special opening credits montage. <laughs> Good, great. Um, Drake seems especially scandalized by this. We get a little bit of that. His character is a little more. Yeah, he goes stuffy. He, he sees it and he goes, that's disgusting. Which And Jackson is like, ugh, get over it. As a, as a fan of Jerome Flynn on Game of Thrones, to see him playing like pr- a much more prudish and sort of upstanding kind of guy yeah. <laughs> who's like offended by a, a nudie pic, yeah. it's it's just it kinda it just tickles me. Like yeah. it's fun to see him play a slightly different type of character. Yeah. Than, that's always fun. Yeah. 
than uh, hit Braun the sellsword. I don't know what that means, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so then they have to return to their undercover fight sting, unfortunately. Uh, Joseph Smeaton, the guy in, in, in charge that they're trying to take down, uh, demands their attention. Drake is posing as the fighter, as the boxer, and Reed is posing as his manager mm-hmm. who's organizing these fights, which are fixed. In addition to, I believe, the underground fighting just in general being illegal, Smeaton is fixing the fights. Yeah. Drake is in the middle of the fight when he sees the Toph. And he almost blows their sting operation because he, he's supposed to take, he's supposed to let himself get taken down. Right. But he needs to find a way to tell Reed that this guy is here. They still manage to end the fight, take down Smeaton. Drake just barely coughs out, Reed, the Toph. Whiskers, carriage, or whatever, which is why he needed to be a very recognizable character for that moment. Right. And unfortunately, the Toph gets away. Mm-hmm. But now we know he was at the fight, betting on the fight. Yes. Then Jackson shows them some of the smut, and they're talking about it in Reed's office, and Reed notices a blemish from a camera lens mm-hmm. on both the photos of the smut and the photos of the crime scene, and they realize Croydon must have taken both photos. They go to Croydon's photo studio to confront him. He's not there. They find more smut, including photos of the Toph actively strangling Maud, the woman who was killed, and they're dressed in some historical, I think vaguely Egyptian yeah. costumes, which is hilarious, because the Toph is like very pale. He's like a ginger. He's got a mustache, and he's wearing this like pharaoh hat thing. It's Super accurate, you guys. Um, but he's got like a belt or something around yeah. her neck. And they go, well, there you go. She was strangled. That could easily have been, you know, when, when it happened. Croydon then catches them, lights some of the film stock on fire. They barely escape. There's a funny bit where uh, Reed builds a bomb, essentially, yeah. out of photo material. So he's a clever fellow. It, like. Croydon, like, sets the photo lab on fire and then locks them in. Yeah. With the big, heavy door. They're, like, in a basement, like yeah. a walk-down. And then uh, uh, Reed improvises explosives out of just, like, random shit lying around in yeah. the photography lab. It was, it was my favorite scene. Yeah. Of the whole episode. Because, like, I don't know. It It's, a, again, that thing where the show is filmed practically. So you don't have people, like, jumping, like, off of carriages into canals or, like, cr- like you would see in the, the Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. Like, yeah. there's kind of that aesthetic going on, but this is much more grounded in reality. So the, the big action scene of the episode is three guys stuck in a burning basement building a bomb. Out, out of, of photochemicals. Yeah, photochemicals. And then they, they stuff the bomb material like around the door and then they're trying to light it by throwing matches at yeah, it. Yeah, which is, it was actually kind of a funny scene because they, they stand back behind like they upend a table yeah. and then they're surrounded by fire but the fire isn't by the doors so Reed is having to try to throw matches which are not, you know, they're, they're go blowing out as he throws them yeah. across the room. It's it's actually kind of a, a fun moment. It's yeah. played well. And then my I... I kind of put the two scenes together like right after the explosion they get out there's this lovely shot of the three of them sitting against a wall outside like having a cigarette and just being like like well we just barely didn't die and also lost a huge amount of evidence yeah but they did manage to save two very important things one the photo of the Toph with 
mod. Mm-hmm. It's very important. And a curious piece of film, which seems to be a long piece of film with a whole bunch of pictures that all seem to be the same. And yet, if you look at the first and the last picture, they're different. Hmm. Also, it's it's just a picture of a bird flying. Mm-hmm. And then... Reed puts it together because he was shown earlier in the episode reading a newspaper that had an article or an advertisement about the famous, I can't remember the name of it. The, the Frenchman who uh, is widely thought of as creating the first motion picture. Yeah, the, it shows those frames of the image of the horse because the yeah. guys were trying to prove whether a horse's feet all leave the ground while it's running, right? Right. So Reed puts it together and goes, there's this Frenchman who's figured out a way to make moving pictures. By capturing every moment and then showing them so quickly that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it appears moving. And he goes, combine that with smut. Imagine if you could have moving pictures of this. And he yeah. basically goes, he basically, in his head in that moment, invents the, the porn internet. industry. <laughs> also that. <laughs> hey, the porn goes way before the internet, buddy. No, I, I know, but... <laughs> but yeah. He, it's in that moment. You'd see these three men grasping the reality of, <laughs> of Porn. pornos. <laughs> and they're like, that would be worth so much money and also kind of horrifying at the same yeah. time. After this, they begin their search for the Toph. Eventually they figure out he's this rich asshole who's gotten in trouble for indecency before. I think they say he got his cock out at a church picnic, ripped yeah. the blouse off of a pregnant woman. Really horrible stuff, but... But, like, ridiculously (laughs) horrible. Like, Bond villain level horrible. (laughs) But despite all this ridiculousness, he's always gotten off because... (laughs) Phrasing. (laughs) Phrasing. He's never been actually held accountable for his actions because he's rich. He's got family connections. Adeline says, guy like that, chances of him doing time are about as good as the queen being put in prison. And also, in this moment where they, like, show Adeline the photo and give him all the information, like, yeah. Adeline immediately is like, go get him. Like, he, which is a, because Adeline's been, like, so, like, going for the ripper. Yeah. And so it's nice to see that Adeline is a man who will accept facts and, like, yeah. he is willing to pursue the truth. That's true. The reason he shows up is because he he's given Reed some sort of ultimatum early in the yeah. episode. Like, if you haven't figured out something concrete by this day, I'm coming to claim this girl and she'll be my case. Yeah. And he comes to claim her and then they go, no, this is the guy. And he the goes, photo. he sees the picture and immediately goes, yeah, that math checks out. That guy's a piece <laughs> of shit. <laughs> so it's good to see that he'll, he understands reason. Yes. So at the same time as they are doing this, setting out to find the top, we see him taking two girls from the brothel, mm-hmm. paying Madame Suzanne, and taking the girls, including Rose. So he takes the girls to basically an orgy. Mm-hmm. We see Rose waking up the next day. We're kind of intercutting this with the cops searching for the talk because they have an address for him. That's yeah. all they know. Um, we see her waking up a bunch of half-naked people, sweaty people lying around this room, strangely says... That was us this morning. <laughs> we're, we're, we just finished a fringe festival and we went to the hangover breakfast this morning where everyone was a bit bleary. It was like a, about a hundred artists and performers and stage technicians and everybody's like, uh. Yep. <laughs> so it's just fun to see like a pile of people being, uh. Except they're mostly asleep. Rose is yeah. the only one who wakes yes. up. She tries to leave. Toph sees her. Arthur Donaldson, I think is actually the character yeah. name. He drags her off 
and ends up showing her, forcing her to watch this, the first snuff film, basically. Yeah. The actual footage of him murdering Maude. Mm-hmm. Which Croydon is is showing with the camera. And he says, shall we make another? And then ends up drugging Rose, uh, dragging her to this courtyard to set up the film. Croydon is setting up the camera. He's definitely portrayed as reluctant. Yeah. Uh, They didn't, the only thing I wish they'd kind of established is what sway he had over Croydon, Donaldson. Because Croydon didn't really seem to want to do this. But maybe Donaldson was funding his invention of the machine. But yeah. they didn't establish that. I, I think also the, the, the initial snuff film where he kills uh, Maude, uh, I don't... It's unclear if maybe it was like An a accident. like a bondagey thing that went too far. Yeah. And then he, he was like more into it. But at that point, uh, Croydon was like an accessory to murder. So he had like... You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, honestly, I it would absolutely make sense. Everything would be consistent if it was... The reason Quinn got involved in this in the first place is because he had this idea for this right. machine. Donaldson's rich, so he could fund it. Right. They are shooting this this porn. Maude is accidentally killed. Donaldson's into it. Croydon's not, but Donaldson's like, hey, you're an accessory now. Right. It's a shame they couldn't work any of that in, but they were establishing a lot, and there were yeah. a lot of elements. So I don't blame them for letting and, that slide. And yeah, the the Croydon character is kind of this like tragic figure mm-hmm. who's in over his head, who's a brilliant inventor, who's invented the film camera from scratch, yeah. based on only like a vague idea he heard that somebody else had made it. Yeah, like it's a, a really interesting character, and it's the kind of thing that like. I would like to see more of from this series because there's yeah. new. Not all the baddies are are cartoonish villains. Villains like some of them. Donaldson are, is a bit yeah. cartoonish, but no, he's Croydon very, is sympathetic. But Croydon is more sympathetic, which yeah. then makes the whole situation more nuanced because you're wondering like what maybe Donaldson's sway over Croydon is not uh, uh, punitive. Maybe he's not like I'll get you. Like maybe he's like been funding him. Maybe he's been. F- taking care of Gordon for years yeah, or something. It's just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. We have a little bit of one of, personally, my uh-huh. least favorite little uh-huh. conceits or mm-hmm. a- affectations in a TV show where we see the cops running up to the building. We see Donaldson inside dragging Rose away. We see them bust the door down. It's not the same building. Right. They had an old address for Donaldson. Or that they break down the door of his house, but he's got a sex house right. somewhere else. Yeah, as all rich British men do. Yeah, you got your house and then you got your sex house, obviously. You can't have sex in your actual house. No. Get all over the furniture. It's ridiculous. All the sex. All the sex. (laughs) Just sex all over the furniture. (laughs) You wouldn't want it to get on the antiques. Mother might notice. (laughs) The family heirlooms. So, uh... Anyway, and then they eventually... Do find his other house. They beat up Smeaton, I think, and they yeah. get some information from him. They beat it out of Smeaton. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Smeaton. Uh, like, stuffing his fake money in his mouth. Yeah. Like, oh, yes, that's right. It, they, that's they, how they find right. him, because they, Madam Suzanne yeah. eventually reports, like... That the guy had the fake money. Yeah, because Jackson goes, where the hell is Rose? And yeah. Suzanne's like, oh, she went out with some tough who paid me in fake money. Right. Jackson puts it together, drags Suzanne to the police station. Yep. They recognize the money as being from Smeaton's fight, and that's how they know. It's definitely the Toph. Yeah. That's just another nail in the coffin. When they eventually catch him, they manage to stop him. Rose is, like, about to be throttled. She's drugged. She's all bleary. Donson's about to kill her on camera. They rush in. I am not clear on why Drake had a sword. 
So when they busted, unless into, it was a Game I, of Thrones reference, I I know <laughs> I was so so. What happened was when they busted into the sex house, all the orgy people are kind like, of oh, waking crap. up, and someone grabs a sword for no reason. I mean, you gotta have a sword at an orgy, and goes charging at the cops. <laughs> I almost, I was about to take a sip of my tea. So Sorry. close to a spit take there. But but like you know, he charges the cops with a sword, and uh, 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 Sergeant Drake punches him, takes the sword. I think Sergeant Drake gets stabbed a little bit with the sword, but he like punches the guy, takes the sword, and then has the sword in hand still when they go charging out into the backyard where the new snuff film was being filmed. Yeah, and they when they see Donaldson is at, in the act of attempting to kill Rose, Drake stabs him. Yeah. And the tough is dead. And then the best moment of the episode, I think we might agree. Mm-hmm. Reed turns to Croydon. And says, whatever happens, whatever punishment is seen fit, and points at the camera and says, that is extraordinary. It's this really genuine moment where Reed doesn't just go, you bastard, how dare you with the smut punch. He's like, I just want to take a moment before I obviously have to arrest you. Yeah. And just say, that's fucking cool. Yeah. And Croydon has this moment where he like, you could see like he kind of breaks. He yes. almost begins to weep. Yeah. And then he picks up the camera. He reaches inside and lights the film inside yeah. it on fire, which like celluloid is... Yeah. Yeah. He lights the, him and the camera on fire. Yeah. They are both done. And he self... Yeah, he self-immolates. Yeah. And Reed and Drake have... They just yeah. stand there, which part of me is like, why didn't they try to stop him? I guess at that time they were kind of like, oh, if you're that much on fire, you're dead. Yeah. These days we we try to save somebody yeah. because... Hospitals are good. Right. <laughs> At that point, I guess they were like, "Ooh, shit! Well, he's dead." <laughs> it's I a sad on moment. on nail. Well, let's pick out a coffin. <laughs> yeah, might as well take him behind the barn and shoot him. <laughs> uh, it's a sad moment though, because we yeah. see Croydon like, "Oh, I know it was fucking cool, but he's too deep into this." Yeah. So it's a bit of a sad end mm-hmm. for this character, who's a villain in the episode, but a sympathetic one. A tragic figure. Yeah. It's something we both liked about the show. Yeah. We then end with the final scene. Reed in his office with Best, the smarmy newspaper man, and Adeline. He gives Best an envelope containing basically all of the evidence of the case. And everyone's like, why? And Reed says, because this is the truth. And I want you to report it. Mm -hmm. He's giving Best an amazing story. Because he knows if he doesn't give him that, he'll report some other hogwash. Yeah, he'll make some shit up or something. It's been established in the episode that Best has been all over the Jack the Ripper case, has accused men who were then proven innocent, but he accused them in an in-print before, ruined lives, sensationalized the murders of these women who, you know, didn't deserve that. So he's giving Best the story because he says, you're going to report it one way or the other, and I want you to report the truth. Mm -hmm. And he kind of takes them both to task for both of them wanting it to be Jack for their own reasons. Greed on Best's part and... Guilt. Yeah, guilt and pride in Adeline's part because he wants another crack. He doesn't Mm -hmm. want to be the man who didn't catch Jack the Ripper. He gives this great dramatic speech asking that we find a little joy in his continued absence and that they not look for him in every act of evil. And basically says, you know, Adeline tries to say, look... This is always going to connect the two of us. We are never going to be free. And yep. he says, no, I will not live my life controlled by the specter of Jack the Ripper. 
And it's kind of the, this is the raison d'etre of the show. This is him giving the speech of like, this is what the show's going to be about speech, which is a nice way to end it. Yeah. And we end on a nice shot of him walking out onto the streets, putting on his hat, kind of like taking a deep breath, kind of taking in and striding off down the street, which I saw as kind of representative of people who are afraid to walk down the street when yeah. Jack was active. Yeah. And he's like, now he's like, I can walk out into the city of London yep. and feel like he's not out there. Yep. And he's, yeah, it's all about him him and the city. Mm-hmm. Reed's sort of a bit of a, he represents London yeah. almost. He's like, he just, he's trying to fight, a way, get over. He's Jack the Ripper. Antonio Banderas of, of this Antonio Banderas in in Evita, who <laughs> Antonio Took me a minute, Banderas I'm like, Which Antonio is Banderas? Argentina, and so yeah, like yeah, yeah. But it, that's a really nice take on that. Like I, I was subconsciously feeling that, but I couldn't quite put it into words. So yes, yeah. yeah. And that's the synopsis. Yeah. Normally we'd go straight into cliffs and ships here, but because we tried to make the synopsis a little bit tighter, we're just going to have kind of a general chat about the episode first before we do cliffs and ships and then our final verdict. So I just wanted to say right off the bat, I know I mentioned it earlier that we I was really excited that it was filmed practically, mm-hmm. but I think also one of the, one of the things that like, as we were talking about the episode, it kind of came back to me more too, is that the since it was filmed practically, people are interacting with the world in a different way than they would be if there were a lot of, um, you know, green screen setups and things like that. There's, there's a lot, like a lot of really interesting lensing and camera angles that are happening because they have, they're able to play in the spaces and they can kind of choose things more naturally. When you have like a setup with a green screen, you're kind of you have to shoot a certain You're way. locked into pre-designed shots. Yes. Yeah. Whereas this was just like, there were certain scenes that felt free form and they would kind of do like some handheld and things like that, which I liked. Cool. Yeah. Are you staring at the googly eyes on my glasses? I actually has googly eyes on his glasses. It's just hilarious to hear him talk very seriously about film techniques with googly eyes. <laughs> anyway, moving on. One of the things I really liked about this show is it had some great turns of phrase in mm-hmm. the script. Which we, some of them came up in the recap, but not all of them all did. Things like Reed saying that maybe this woman wasn't actually killed by Jack the Ripper, but was dressed as Jack's work. Or he said, dressed as Jack for our eyes. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And um, his thing about whatever happens, whatever punishment is seen fit, that is extraordinary. It was a great line, well delivered. Yeah. Oh, and some of them were funny too, like Jackson saying to Susan, which of the girls has a leaning to smut? I just, <laughs> I just like that one. Um, oh, and we, when they're interviewing Thwaite, the mm-hmm. husband of Maud, the fiddle teacher, and he's talking about her past, he says, before we got married, she admitted to me a certain, not remembering the exact wording, but it was something like, she admitted to a certain practicality of living. Something, yeah. Something like that. And that was his euphemism for, she had to do what she had to do to survive. Mm-hmm. And that's like, a very, a rather generous way of putting it yeah. for someone in that time period. Like, it was kind of cool. Yeah, it was for that time. I, did, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But it, yeah, there, and there's a there's a lot of that kind of thing in this that I find very compelling. Yeah. The, the, I feel like in general, fiction about this time period is very black and white. It's kind of like one of the last time periods that people for some reason seem to be willing to portray as black and white. And it's something that, 
my experience of this time period in film, television, books, things like that, is that it's it's very like these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and we must catch this maniac or whatever. And this there were characters like uh, the the photographers Croydon, name, like Croydon, who are portrayed as kind of these shades of gray as, as there's yeah. a basic humanity there's a tragedy to Croydon not just like he's the because it would have been so easy to make him like the like, oily like sniveling yeah, evil like, character yes yeah. master strangle the strangle that tart and I shall film it for our amusements yeah but instead like he's this character that it, like has a very moving arc where yeah. you kind of see him almost find like a like it's almost like the the small glimmer of hope when uh, Reed says that is extraordinary is almost like this not quite redemptive but it's like he sees beauty again and that eno- that is enough to make him break yeah it's- and he also there's another scene earlier uh, which we kind of glossed over in the synopsis but it's a good moment both for Croydon as a one-off character and establishing Reed as a regular character which is when Reed first goes to Croydon's studio and he kind of conscripts Croydon into taking photos of the crime scene for him rather than for Best. Uh-huh. And he's checking out the photos and he sees a few plates and goes, what about those? And Croydon's like, oh, I overexposed them. And Reed's like, well, it's worth it to still check them out. Go ahead and yeah. do them. And then Croydon, knowing these photos would reveal Best had interfered. He's trying to cover his own ass, uh-huh. uh, but he tries to uh, accidentally accidentally on purpose lift the photos out of the solution too soon and they go oh oops I ruined them you won't be able to see because what Reed sees is two pictures of the wall one before the graffiti and one after right and it's a nice moment for Reed because he starts to lift Croydon starts to lift the photo out and Reed pushes his hand down and goes it needs more time than that professional man like you would know that and it's like Reed's a clever trousers because he Uh knows not just He's like, oh, photography is important to my job as a police officer t- these days. But he understands how the science works a right. little bit, at least. And that, you know, not something that someone necessarily would know at that time, I think. I'm not an expert in that time. Yeah. Thing. well, And it's also, yeah, I mean, photography was relatively new at that time. Yeah. And the, the, the processes were, especially with someone like Croydon, who is making his own equipment and he's sort of kind of probably figuring out a lot of the stuff. Yeah. He's yeah. in like a grimy basement. Yeah. He's you know, doing sketchy jobs yeah. for s- smarmy journalists. He's not a super professional rich person who yeah. got into this yes. world because he's like, ooh, have fun to play with the science because yeah. I'm rich and have the money to do it. So yeah, it's... He's it, a brilliant amateur almost. Yeah, it, it it makes not only Croydon both more sympathetic and also more like, yeah, he's sympathetic, but he's not exactly... He doesn't have a heart of gold or anything. Right. He's still... Trying to cover his own ass and protect yeah. himself, it, it but it establishes that he's kind of stuck in an awkward position, mm-hmm. and also establishes Reed as being one step ahead and not you can't pull the wool over his eyes. Right, and also like the character of Reed, you talked about him kind of being aware of like technological advancements and things. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of that's sort of a recurring theme in this episode. You have uh, there's a scene right. where Reed says, "Tell all of the other police stations in the nearby suburbs or whatever." And they right. use a fancy like teletype electric telegraph that prints out a little strip of ticker tape. Yeah. And it's clearly like a very new thing that everybody is like super stoked about. Yeah. I, I actually did want to mention that. that The scene was very funny. It wasn't really important to the plot, so he glossed over it. But 
they have, there's a character who's recurring throughout the episode who I never got his name. I referred to him as young Bobby. Oh, that was what I was going to call him as well. Yeah, so because he's good. a very young, fresh-faced uh, police detective, not detective, like a police officer. Yeah, he's a um, little, he's a beat cop. Yeah. He's he's the the Hugh of this episode. Yes. I just kept thinking of him like um, Hugh from Miss Fisher. But he's young and he's the one who's been trained to use the teletype machine. Mm-hmm. And there's a great moment where Jackson, Reed, and Drake are all standing behind him. And he's going, okay, you can see him running through the instructions in his head trying to set up the machine so they can ask if anybody's missing a fiddle teacher yes. at that point. And Reed's kind of leaning over him and going, come on. And he says, what's the line? I think he says... Come on, boy, this is the future. Yeah. And someone, I think uh, Jackson makes yeah. a smart comment about maybe the future would come a little sooner if you weren't breathing down no, his No, Drake neck. says that. Drake does? Oh, yeah. that's better. It's like the, com- it's like sort of, you said kind of he's more of like a common sense kind of down to earth guy. Mm-hmm. A really fun interplay that you see a couple of these from between Drake and uh, Inspector Reed that Drake, even though he's his second in command and kind of his assistant or whatever, there's something in Drake that like, helps Reed focus. Yeah. There's a couple of those moments where like when they're when he's trying to toss the matches. Yeah. And Jackson is yelling and we're like, we're gonna die, we're gonna die. And then Drake is like, shut up Jackson. And then he turns to Reed and he's like, take all the time that you need. Yeah. And like <laughs> there's a little bit of sarcasm to it, but he's also just being like, dude, you got this. Yeah. I trust you, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. And and it would have been so easy in that scene for them to have Drake being the one who's like, I don't know, use the machine and Reed to be the one who's like Oh, right, give the boy space. Yeah. But instead, they, they switch that. They and that gives that. both of them more of a developed character. Yeah. And and that, again, ties back to what we were saying a little bit ago about how a lot of these characters have a little bit more nuance or interest than just being stock. Like, people yeah. are already kind of played. And even having Jerome Flynn kind of played against type, where he's a bruiser. Like, we see him fighting and boxing and everything. And yet, he's like the most prudish of them. Yeah, exactly. It's like with the first shot we see, he's in a boxing ring in an undercover sting operation and he's beating the crap out of somebody. And then, yeah, he's a little more prudish. He's a little more like uncomfortable with all the smut and nonsense. And also more old fashioned. Like. Yeah. Oh, there's a great scene at the end where when they rescue Rose, mm-hmm. they take her back to the brothel where she lives. Yeah. And Drake is the one carrying her. Uh-huh. And he sets her down and she's still woozy from the drug yeah. that Arthur gave her and she's like saying something about I thought it was safe again you know like I thought you know yeah. we didn't have to worry about this kind of thing obviously being a sex worker right. she would be even more concerned about Jack the Ripper returning than an average person and she says something about I thought it was safe again and Drake says it is safe and yet there's this moment where he looks very caring yeah. towards her and you might think he would have been like, oh, a woman of the night, gross, yeah. or something, or oh, how scandalous. But instead, he just looks very caring towards her. And then Jackson steps in and goes, I'll take care of her from here. And Drake kind of steps backward like he's having a moment. And yeah. kind of, there's a there's a shot of him then walking down the hall. It really follows him. Yeah. That I thought was great. Gave Drake this character moment yeah. that we might not have seen otherwise. He was not simply the bruiser or simply the yeah. prude or anything. It's... I, I hope that that's something they're setting up for the future, basically, for his character. Speaking of setting up things for the future, yeah, I am such a fan of the like little glimpses into Suzanne and Jackson's history. Like, yeah, it's not even by the end of the pilot, 
it's not clear what their relationship to each other is. Yeah. Because we're not given like, I can't believe I'm still married to you. Or like, I can't, you are the, (laughs) ever since our parents told us, blah, blah, like you don't know if they're brother and sister or married or like lovers. No, they're they're not brother and sister. You don't know what their relationship is. Like she I'm says, just, I, she does have a line where she says, Oh I, yeah, I won't let you near he me He accuses again. her of being jealous of his relationship with Rose or his interest in Rose. And she says, I would rather shrivel alone yeah. than let you near me again. So we know that they at least have been intimate in the past, if not romantically involved. Yeah. So we but, got a little bit, but yeah, it was subtle like that. It wasn't expologue, which was really nice. And that that's the thing. It's, it's such a tricky balance to negotiate when you're with a, with a pilot or with any kind of story that you have characters who are revealing things about themselves and their past and their relationships to each other, but, uh, also not having them say things to each other that no human being would say to another human being. All of the exposition dialogue between the two of them, especially was pretty subtle. He does say something about, Hey, you said, let's go to this shithole. It'll be a perfect place for us to hide. But guess what, sweetie? It's been two years. We're not hiding. We live here. Yeah. So it's established. They came here together. They were involved in some way. Something is still connecting the two of them. Yeah. But they don't really like each other. Yeah. And they're connected. It's a... They know things about each other. A quote-unquote marriage of necessity. Yeah. And that... That whole thing, like, I'm interested in those characters. Like, I want to see where that's going. And it was set up in such a way that we learned what we needed to learn to establish their relationship and what it means to the overall series and going forward, but not have someone, like, as you said, expo log their entire life story. Yeah. Ever since we came here from place two years ago, you have been this and I have done thing. Yeah. yeah. It was much more subtle than that, which is a great, I, I don't know. I think it was really well done. In the yeah. Episode. That part. Oh, we also, uh, in the, uh, on the topic of fun turns of phrase, uh-huh. there is an opening, the cold open as it were, when they first find the body of yes. Mont. Wait, is, a bit of Ripper tourism happening. Yeah. You know how they do tours nowadays? They do Jack the Ripper tours in London. Yeah. I don't know if they were actually doing it at that time or if this was a bit of an anachronism for fun. Uh-huh. I hope this was accurate. But we open on a guy giving a tour, some some slightly, you know, upper middle class people yeah. uh, being walked around by this gentleman in a very loud vest saying, oh yes, here we are. And they're all going, oh my, whores and drunks and oh goodness. Yeah. And he's saying, the Ripper could be around any corner and doing that whole thing. And then they spot the dead body. And when he sees the body, what does he say, strangely? I t- <laughs> you blocked it out. You were delighted in the moment. You, I thought yeah, you he, said, he said like, Horse shit buggery or something like that. I believe it was bat shit buggery. Bat shit buggery. We might be wrong. Maybe we've heard it wrong because that seems... I think... I don't know if bat shit was a saying back then, but... But it's it's like... It's it's two unconnected (laughs) swears that just kind of pour out of this guy and it feels so natural. Yeah. It's a lovely little bit of performance. I I do want to say, I think um, like poverty tourism... And crime yeah. tourism was a thing in the Victorian era. Like the idea of sort of slumming it for an, for an evening to yeah. sort of go down there was kind of a thing. Because yeah. it's something that you see in like um, some of the Dickens novels and stuff too. Like 
People right. like to go partying below their oh, station. Oh, sure. Well, that's like always that. been a thing for sure. Yeah. But with this specifically, it, it was nice because it Ripper sets tourism. up. Yeah. yeah, it sets up not only that we are post Ripper close enough that he's still doing a oh he could be lurking around any corner, but far enough that people have gotten comfortable enough again to go how do I make a buck off of right. this Jack the Ripper thing? Well, it's very they, human nature. Yeah, they've gone from being for afraid of it to going how do I monetize right. it? Right. Right. Also, we didn't talk that much about Best, the smarmy newspaper man character. Yeah. Who, I mean, we mentioned him, but he is awful in a, in a you're supposed to hate him way, not in a, yeah. the actor was bad way, but bad enough that I was like, oh, I don't want this character to come back. He's just so smarmy. Yeah. It was a, maybe a little over the top. Something, uh, I guess we can naturally transition here into Cliffs and Ships, I guess, which is... I, one thing I would hope for the future of the show is that um, Best gets a little more of a character. Yeah. He that, is just the, awful. He is just opportunistic. In the very first scene, right, right after we already establish that the, Croydon is there on Best's dime, Best then shows up with the crowd of people watching them carry away the body. Yeah. And he shouts to Reed more for the crowd's benefit than yeah. actually asking Reed, is this him? Is this the work of Jack or whatever? And when Reed says, you know, we don't know yet. I'm not answering any of your questions or something. Best goes, these people need their questions answered. And Reed says, he gets up his face and says, no, they need their fears pacified. Yeah. And Best goes, where's the fun in that? So yeah. now we know he's not just, I genuinely want answers for the people. Right. He's a dick. Yeah. It was well done in that scene, but it was like, oh, he's so gross and greasy. Right. And, and that, that aforementioned nuance where characters kind of had maybe a little bit more layers, mm-hmm. some of them. He did not, and I really would like that. Because he, he is, at least based on what I saw in the opening credits, which were, we didn't talk about the opening credits. They look very much like someone saw the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmeses and was like... <laughs> right. We must make this a show. Yeah. Um, it's sort of that, like, v- Victorian... I don't want to say steampunk. It's not quite the... Like, Victorian punk. Like, it's that, like... Everything's, like, large, blocky, typewritery looking yeah. letters. and. But in those opening credits, Best is one of the five leads of the show, apparently. So I really hope that we get some depth and nuance to him as yeah. the show goes forward. Because... It, it, it is an interesting interplay, the, the press and the, the police and how that all works. Like, the, the ticking clock in the episode, I mean, there was the head inspector being like, I'm going to come take the body. But the, the ticking clock that, right, yeah. that, uh, that Inspector Reed was really fighting against was that Best said, I'm going to publish my, like, out of my ass theories about this on Friday. So yeah, you he gives prove Reed it wrong. until Friday. Yeah. He says, you know, get, get some proof. That yeah. this wasn't Jack by Friday, or I'm publishing whatever the heck I want. Yeah, and it was fun to see to have that be the ticking, the ticking yeah. clock. Not like I'll have your badge by Thursday. You yeah. know, like he would just lose the case. But it it was like his his desire for the overall public safety and yeah. people's like the the sort of mental health of the city, yeah. as it were. Right. Yeah. Is the ticking clock, which is a, an unusual device for a procedural show. Like I. It's very different than like, well, it's it, Al Qaeda. And it could have been just Adeline saying, I'll take the body and I'll take the case yeah. from you. It could have just been that. Yeah. And it, then it would have been more self preservation that made mm-hmm. Reed want to s- solve the crime. But 
also having best say I'll publish some yeah. bullshit meant yeah it was more about the the public which was nice and I certainly hope if he's going to be a main character that he'll get more of a character in the show but I'm less confident this is the Genozo rule yeah I believed in the NCIS pilot that I'm sure this character is just getting some characters get a bit of a short shrift in the pilot because they don't have time to develop everyone but then they get a real character later and the Dinozo rule is not always sometimes people stay the character they are in the pilot yeah. forever so hopefully best gets a little more also just on the topic of best and uh with our sir arthur like i it's very uncomfortable for me yeah. to be looking at the show and seeing the two like kind of villainy-ish characters being like fops. Yeah. That sort of trope. I of, wouldn't like... say, yeah, Best wasn't quite to the point of being like a fop, but he is the Victorian equivalent of a metrosexual. Yeah. He's well-groomed. He has very nice... Clean fingernails. Ti- very tidy little mustache and little goatee. Yeah. And he is a handsome young man. It's it's definitely... It's a little bit... It's leaning towards a little queer coding. Yeah. And that... Either one of the characters you can kind of justify. Yeah. But having both of the... Do, do different kinds of villains in the first episode, both being queer coded, was like... Yeah. Part of my brain wants to be like, oh, maybe it was a coincidence. But another part of my, the cynical part of my brain is like, right. nope, we're going to see this a lot on the show. That is something that like I will be looking for as I watch future episodes of this because I do plan on watching at least the next couple. Yeah, I'd like to give at least a couple episodes a try, see how it goes. Sort of on the kind of topic of like broader hopes, cliffs, ships, whatever we want to call it for the show. I would like to see more female characters. Like, yeah. there's some interesting hints. Um, where there's this. There's a scene that we didn't talk about in the summary, just because it didn't really affect the overall plot of the episode. But Reed goes home, just change into a clean shirt. I'm home for a shirt. Yeah, because he's he's he was out all night. He was yeah. at the 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 sting operation where he probably wasn't dressed his best for that. Yeah, exactly. So his wife comes home and she's just come from church, which he missed. Yeah. And again, it's that kind of like, she could have just been like supportive cop wife, but there, I got the vibe in the scene that like, she has some questioning of sort of him and his pursuit of cases and things. Like it's not. There's a little bit of tenseness in the scene between them that they absolutely do not address. And it's okay because that's the kind of thing you honestly should get in a pilot. You don't want everything to be wrapped up because you want to have some questions, you know? For example, Jackson and Susan's relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, this is another thing that they established that we don't get uh, more of, which is uh, his wife, Emily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, she's, he mentions, like, look, we don't know if it's Jack or not. I'm, I'm, I hope I'm going to prove that it's not. But he says, just in case, don't, don't go out to, uh, outside the house tonight. Yeah, which is an interesting... I don't know. It's just the whole scene, again, is that same thing as with Jackson and Suzanne. Like, it's, it seems to be hinting. Was it Suzanne, not Susan? I've been saying Susan. I, I may have just written it wrong. I have my We know too. the madam Sue. Sue. Susie. Susie Q. Madam Sue. <laughs> um, and that is again the scene where he takes off his shirt and we see that he's covered in scars, which right, is another yeah. thing that isn't really, you know, it's more material for later. That was that was actually interesting. I expected at least a line from Drake or Jackson about it later. Yeah. Something to hint. It was interesting to introduce something like that 
and then absolutely not address it. I'm 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 letting it go. I'm not like mad about it, but right. it was surprising. He is riddled with scars. Yeah. It, and it looked it wasn't like, oh, he has a few scars from some kind of No, it's like you've been dipped in acid. Yeah, that kind of level of his whole shoulder and most of his yeah. torso. So that'll be interesting to find out what that's yeah. all about later. Uh fun fact, yeah. because uh this was something we addressed in the white collar episode. Mm-hmm. Uh the age Juju. gap with the 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 wife husband of uh, the the cop with the, young, the wife hot young wife hot young wife uh, between uh, Amanda Hale and Matthew McFadden there is only an eight year difference so this show gets it slightly better but she still is significantly younger than him yeah and uh, whatever it's period blah 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 but it's still it's a thing that we notice yeah. We're keeping an eye on you, Hollywood and the BBC. <laughs> Although, I do also get the vibe that he is meant to be playing... Like, they are meant to be playing their ages. I didn't get that from her. I didn't get anything from her. Yeah. She is a woman. There's some tenseness between them. She's maybe disapproving of his job yeah. or something. That's all you get from her. You don't get any right. personality. She barely says a word. And she's dressed, like, in church clothes. Right. With a bonnet on. It was just something I noticed and wanted to remark on. Also, the, that scene, I don't know why I'm so fixated on it, but I just, it's so interesting, the idea of going home for a shirt is not the kind of thing that you see in a police procedural very often. Like, you'll see them and they're at the office and like, Ugh. And they're know, like I've, loosening the ties and everything. But, I feel like I've heard people say that kind of thing, like, go home, get some sleep, right. come back, or, or like... You know, they address that whole, we've been on this case for hours thing. Yeah. I've seen that in other shows. But, but getting to see it and then having it have a character moment happen and be used to sort of reveal more information about a character. Like, it didn't feel out of place or like they did it to crowbar the wife into the story just so you knew she was there. Yeah. Like, it felt like it had a purpose. Yeah. As for actual cliffs and ships, we kind of transitioned into it, but predictions for the season one cliffhanger. I think the big question is, do we think they're going to... Are they going to suggest that they've actually caught Jack the Ripper? They, I don't think they will go there because the show seems to be playing it relatively close to actual history. But will that be the season one cliffhanger? That's my big question. I th- Yeah, I think the season one cliffhanger will probably involve something else happening where they think Jack is back and it's not as easily disproved. As this one. But also, I'm kind of wondering if they're going to... Because historically, Jack was never caught. No yeah. one knows. It just kind of went away. But I'm wondering if the show will do some sort of cutesy, like, shadow war thing where the detective will, like, catch a criminal maybe for an unrelated thing and he'll know he got Jack, but he won't be able to prove it. It'll be sort of like the Zodiac thing where Mm. there's the newspaper reporter who he's absolutely convinced he knows who the Zodiac killer is, but he can't prove it to the world, that kind of thing. And so he'll get closure on Jack the Ripper but the rest of the world won't kind of a deal. I just had a brilliant theory that just popped into my head because I was remembering a reference in NCIS where someone's talking about uh, they think that someone who killed someone might have been a surgeon or had medical training. Right. And someone said, like, Jack the Ripper, he was a surgeon. And Ducky says, actually, that was just supposition. He was never caught. What if Jackson... Jackson. Is Jack? I don't think he's actually Jack the Ripper, but that would be a really interesting, dramatic conclusion to the first season. 
there's evidence that suggests Jackson might be Jack the Ripper and Reed has to prove him innocent. Oh, shit. That'd be a good one. Yeah. That'd be nice. (laughs) Do we have any ships? It's not really a shipping show, but we have to at least uh, pay tribute to the title of the segment. Uh... I want the young Bobby to have a girlfriend. I don't know. I just, he's cute. I want him to have a girlfriend. I feel like, oh my gosh. What if Drake is gay? Oh, I was about to say, I kind of ship Drake and Rose. That could be a thing. But like, I'm just, I'm just like, I'm just thinking about like sort of that period of time. And there was definitely like a very large, like kind of gay underground scene in London. And it would be really fascinating if one of the leads turns out to have like, a private life that is a uh, friend of Dorothy, as it were. I can, I can imagine that being something that was in his character in a deeply closeted way, though. Yeah. Not in a secret life way. And that would be part of his prudishness was like going, huh, sex, I don't do, I don't ever think about it. It's not, no, me? <laughs> no. Go right. Away. Shh. Like, that would be part of his reaction to, oh, that's disgusting, would yeah. be... Nobody, nobody think about what I think about sex and don't realize what I actually think. I could see that being a direction they could go with his character. Uh-huh. It, it would be kind of nice to see, not that it's nice to see a closeted character, but in reference to the fact that we had two kind of queer-coded villains, it right. would be nice to have a gay character who isn't stereotypical. Yes. So that would be kind of cool. I don't know that I think they're actually going to go there. It is the BBC, but right. it would be kind of neat. But it is also the BBC. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think, think that's it. I mean, other than wanting to see more of Reed's relationship with his wife, wanting to see more of uh, Jackson and Suzanne's uh-huh. history, and wanting to get more of Drake's character, whatever that ends up being, yeah. wanting to get more of him being a complex character. I think that's, yeah, the main thing. I want a little more of a Jackson's history in general because I'm a little bit fascinated by the Pinkertons. So yeah. I like that he's a Pinkerton, a former. An ex-Pinkerton. What what? what what did you have to do to get kicked off the Pinkertons? You know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we've sort of naturally arrived at our final verdict here. Yeah. Did the pilot do the job of a pilot? Uh-huh. And sell you on the concept of the show, make you want to watch more. And I think we're both in agreement that we yeah. want to watch more. Yeah, I actually feel like of all the shows we've watched, this one has sold me the most on this is a worthwhile show that you would enjoy that knows what it's doing. Yeah. I, I'm i very curious to see what this show becomes week to week. Mm-hmm. So, because we sort of had a very, everything got tied up neatly. With some ongoing storylines, if is this a procedural every week with some ongoing storylines, or are they going to end up being one big overarching serialized story? Like I, I'm not sure. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I would guess it's going to be a, a procedural ish show, but I guess yeah, it could go either way, and it will be interesting to see on the show how much is the specter of Jack the Ripper a part of the weekly vibe of the show they did name it ripper street so they they put the ripper on the table but it'll be interesting to see how much because it just it can't be every week is oh no is this the work of jack the ripper they can't do that every single week so i guess we're both gonna pick it up at least for a couple more episodes and maybe we'll do a recap in not too long who knows yeah a catch up 
A catch-up. And maybe we'll do a catch-up episode where we both watch the show, and instead of one of us catching the other up, yeah. we can just generally talk about stuff. That'd be interesting. That's very exciting. You know, we're still figuring shit out on this show, you guys. We're still uh, finding our place in the podcast universe. <laughs> <laughs> and that, And that's it for Ripper Street. Goodbye, we're folks. Putting the tweed to the cobbles. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. We had a lot of fun talking about Ripper Street. We're really excited that we're going to keep the Victoriana vibe going. <laughs> uh, our next episode is going to be about a steampunk TV show because Sarah and I are going to be doing a live panel podcast recording. So we're going to do one of these live in front of an audience at the Clockwork Alchemy Steampunk Festival in San Francisco. You can find out more about it at clockworkalchemy.com, C-L-O-C-K-W-O-R-K-A-L-C-H-E-M. I can't spell. I think they can spell Clockwork Alchemy, buddy. Clockworkalchemy.com uh, <laughs> to find the schedule of our panel time. Uh, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to kind of have a little bit of fun with this. So we're gonna, we, we came up with three steampunk TV show options and basically... Let us know which one you'd like to hear. So if you want to tweet at us or send us a message through... We could put a poll on Twitter, actually. We'll put a poll on Twitter. Yeah, That'll be put a poll on Twitter. Easy. Or if you don't use Twitter, message us any way that you can. Pilothousepodcast at gmail.com. Facebook. Uh, yep. Just search for Pilothouse Podcast. Stop Instagram. us on the street and tell us what you'd like to hear. If you've run into us in California on yep. tour. So here are the three options. Option number one is the television program Legend from 1995, starring John DeLancey, who we all know as Q. From Star Trek. And Richard Dean Anderson, who some of us know as Colonel Jack O'Neill from Stargate SG-1. But most, but most people of us, know him as MacGyver. MacGyver. The man who can make an entire television pilot out of a paperclip and an old typewriter. <laughs> Option number two from 1993 is The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., starring... The chin himself, Bruce Campbell. <laughs> a man I have met three times, despite the fact that I have only seen one movie he has been in, and it was the They Call Me Bruce like parody movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, if chins My name kill. is Bruce. Yeah. My name is Bruce, yes. Yeah. Oh. Someday I'll tell you the story about how I think he stole the title of one of his books from something I said to him. Oh, well, if we end up doing <laughs> The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., that oh, yeah. might make it into the episode. And a little uh, incentive to vote for that one, because I'll tell that story then. And option number three from 1965 is The Wild Wild West. The original TV show that inspired that questionable uh, film from the early 2000s, was if that If you'd one? like to hear me cover a Will Smith rap song with an accordion, vote for that one. <laughs> oh, well, now you've just you've may, basically may, cheated. No, okay, that's true, that's true. So tell you what, tell you what. Regardless, I'm going to cover a Will Smith rap song on accordion, <laughs> regardless of which one of these gets picked. But it will be the Wild Wild West theme song from the movie with him and Kenneth Branagh. What were you thinking? Ugh. He was probably thinking that's a lot of zeros. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> well, because, and also, uh, Legend and uh, The Adventures of Briscoe Kenny Jr. were both inspired by the 1965 television program. So oh, yeah. it's sort of fitting for all of them. They're sort of all of them kind of under a banner, yeah. as it were. So let us know which one of those you will want to hear us talk about. We might might also wait the votes depending on which one we can get access to the pilot. 
yeah. to watch it because we're on tour and we've we've got to see it somehow. And if you're going to be at Clockwork Alchemy in San Francisco, let us know. Your vote will count extra. You get a vote and a half if you're actually going to be there. Oh, there you go. I just decided. I didn't run that by strange. No, it's fine. I, I, I endorse your scheme. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much for listening to Pilot House Podcast. If you like this podcast, please uh, share it around. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Yeah, and tell your friends. Yeah. Tell your enemies. Yeah, tell your you, mom. Tell your dog. Tell everybody. Mm-hmm. Tell your dog twice. We, we really appreciate all the dog listeners that we have <laughs> out there in podcast land. And here, this part is just for you. That was, a, that was a whistle that only dogs can hear. Only dogs can hear. Mm-hmm. It was also known as dead air. Good joke, Sarah. <laughs> you can find out more about us at www.pilothousepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at pilothousepod. We have some sort of Facebook URL, but if you just search for Pilot House Podcast, you'll find us. Yeah. And uh, Also possibly a band that we... Still need to reach out to see if they'll write us a theme song. Yeah, we oh uh, we we just signed up for a buy us a coffee account. That's right. Thank you remembering. Thank you remembering. Thank you remembering. Strangely, buymeacoffee.com slash pilot house. It's a website. If you're already familiar with code fee, this is like that, but it's easier to explain. Basically, yeah. you go to the website, you can buy us a coffee, you can make a small donation. If you want to give us a little tip to show your appreciation for the show, help us out on tour, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, because those tiny cans of champagne to get us through the Degrassi episodes <laughs> aren't going to buy themselves. 